It's November 9th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Right Report, your daily news podcast. I've got four briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, the latest out of the Middle East, with Hamas saying this morning that they want a permanent war with Israel until that country is destroyed. We'll discuss the implications of that as the world is talking about peace. Second, grab your maps, because we've got a new battle to talk about, but not in the Pacific. It's in the Indian Ocean. Yes, to the country of Sri Lanka we go, talking about how the White House just committed over $500 million of your taxpayer dollars to that little country. I'll explain why. Third, I've got an update for you about bird flu and why this year's strain is a little bit unusual. Fourth, researchers are debating whether or not we should invest our taxpayer dollars in vaccines that defeat drug addictions. I'll explain that debate and why we should care in a bit. Later, a response to a whole bunch of listeners today about Tuesday's election. And gosh, a lot of folks are pretty darn upset. So I'm going to respond, but a little bit differently today. No script, just talking from the heart. But first, let's get to our top stories of the morning. Updates for you out of the Middle East and Israel's military operation in the Gaza Strip. The Israeli Defense Forces continued their push deeper into the northern areas of Gaza this morning, most especially in Gaza City. They have now cut that section off from the south, surrounding Gaza City now on all sides. Indeed, the Israelis are targeting the tunnel networks, both under and leading out of Gaza City, and trying to kill as many Hamas leaders as they possibly can that are burrowed in those tunnels. Meanwhile, the Israeli government is anticipating that once Hamas's leaders have been killed or decapitated, removing them from the rest of the group, it'll be easier to target the lower-level fighters. Operations that they anticipate will take upwards of a year. Now, to understand why it's going to take so long, well, consider this. Hamas has six brigades of fighters that total around 40,000 men, give or take. And so far, only two of those brigades have been eliminated, or so says the Israeli Defense Force. Meanwhile, international pressure continues to build on the Israelis for a ceasefire or a pause to operations. And by the way, if you're wondering what the difference is between those two, uh, ceasefire or pause operations, well, you're not alone. There is a lot of debate in diplomatic circles about that, but it doesn't matter. Israel is refusing either way. Instead, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, says that he would agree to what he's calling little pauses, perhaps an hour or two to deliver food and water to civilians, but that's about it. Meanwhile, global conversations and regional diplomacy are now focused on what comes next, as Israel clearly has no intention of stopping. In other words, assuming that the Israelis can achieve the goal of decapitating those Hamas leaders, who will then govern the Gaza Strip? Well, Netanyahu said this week that while Israel does not want to occupy Gaza, it will need to control it indefinitely. Well, what precisely that looks like is unclear, but the Israelis are saying that they have no interest in reoccupying Gaza as they did years gone by. Instead, they want to demilitarize Gaza and monitor those tunnel networks, especially the ones coming to and from Egypt. They don't want to see those facilitating weaponry anymore. Now, for what it's worth, part of Israel's justification for a long-term presence or control of Gaza, it comes down to this. Hamas 
wants a permanent war with Israel until both that country and the Jewish people are removed from the Holy Lands by all means necessary. Indeed, we got confirmation of that this week. In a series of interviews with the New York Times, Hamas's leadership said that the terror group seeks a permanent war with Israel and that the other Arab nations should follow their lead and destroy the Jewish state. And while that is not necessarily a shocker, it is a different message than Hamas's leaders were signaling to Israel over the past couple of years. As listeners will recall from my brief back on October 9th, Hamas was telling the Israelis and tricking them into believing that they just wanted to run the Gaza Strip for the benefit of the Palestinian people. Yes, they said they, they just wanted to ensure more economic development and to reduce poverty amongst the Palestinian people. But as Hamas leaders have again admitted, this time to the New York Times, that was a ruse, a lie. Quote, we are not interested in running Gaza and bringing it, say, water, electricity and such. We do not seek to improve the situation in Gaza. This battle is to completely overthrow the situation, end quote. One final note related to Hamas and their leadership. They continue to say that they did not target civilians when they attacked Israel back on October 7th. And if you think that, Hamas's leader, a fellow named Musa Abu Marzouk, he says that you're just spreading a Zionist conspiracy theory. Never mind the fact that we have a video of Hamas paragliders who landed in that music concert and slaughtered over 250 people. Apparently that is just a Zionist conspiracy. Well, with those facts and data, ladies and gentlemen, let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion. So back on October 9th, just after the attacks, I offered you all this next question to help us frame this conflict. Should Israel exist? Because that question is really at the heart of this fight in Gaza. And what Hamas is telling us this morning very clearly is that for them, Israel should not exist and neither should the Jewish people, certainly not in the Middle East and definitely not in the Holy Lands. To Hamas, those are Muslim lands that must be controlled by Muslims. So, knowing that, which, by the way, is the classic position of Middle Eastern Muslims, both Arab and Persians alike, what is the reasonable expectation that we should have of the Israeli government and the Jewish people? What's a reasonable expected response, knowing that Hamas wants a permanent war? Well, I think that in the face of extermination, we can reasonably expect the Israelis to refuse and fight back. And that includes killing, of course, not only Hamas and the leaders, but in the process of doing such, they will likely kill innocent people, Palestinians. And that is especially true now that Hamas has decided to use civilians as human shields. We know that, of course, they put those people in their command centers, which are then located below hospitals. So, folks, this is what I would continue us to encourage to think about, to understand and frame this conflict. It's ultimately a fight about whether Israel should exist and more broadly, whether Jewish people have a claim to the Holy Lands. And as ever, that is a fight that has been fought for centuries and it will not end fundamentally until it is a settled question, specifically in Arab capitals and Arab streets. Meanwhile, for us in America, our goal should be to make sure that that fight over there does not spill onto our streets here in America. With that, we turn to our second report of the morning. An update for you on our battle for the, well, not exactly the Pacific. It's the Indian Ocean this morning. Heading back there to talk about the country that is called Sri Lanka. All about our fight with the Chinese for influence and supremacy. 
By the way, this fight, in this case, it's going to cost you over $500 million. But before we get to that and that news, a quick refresh of our memories. We were last in this region back on October 3rd, where we grabbed our maps and we discussed some pretty important elections in the tiny island country of the Maldives. Right? Voters there picked, a, well, unfortunately, a pro-China president, and that was potentially bad for us, as we have a key naval base nearby on an island that is called Diego Garcia. Well, we are going back to this region this morning, and looking again at our maps, let's head north and east of the Maldives to the island country of Sri Lanka. Let's talk about some fun history. So this island was under the control of the Brits for over 150 years, but after it got independence back in 1948, it descended into an absolute wreck, a a civil war, and it was infused with Marxist fighters and religious differences, and it was bloody and very destructive. And that's a shame for a lot of reasons, but in no small part because it is just an absolutely beautiful place. It's got rainforest, exotic animals, and man, this area that's called the Central Highlands. If you've got time, do some internet research on that region and that Central Highlands. It's just absolutely gorgeous. But nevertheless, Sri Lanka is still, unfortunately, a pretty impoverished wreck of a nation, but it is located in a very important part of the world. And that is all because China is trying to build a global network of ports that will connect its ships in China all the way through Africa and the Middle East. And Sri Lanka, if you look at the map, it fits quite nicely into that strategy as they're seeking to cross the Indian Ocean. And that strategy and that key location helps explain this. About 20 years ago, China loaned Sri Lanka about a billion dollars to build a new port there. But Sri Lanka, which again, very poor country, They had no ability to pay that money back, and China knew it. It's a part of what's called their their, uh, debt trap diplomacy that we've discussed before. Well, predictably, Sri Lanka was then forced to turn that port over to the Chinese when they couldn't make payments back in 2017. Indeed, Sri Lanka had to sign a 99-year lease with Beijing, and they lost control over their own port. Well, that incident made the United States stand up and take notice. The government realized that if the United States government wants to compete with the Chinese for influence and supremacy all around the world, they are going to need to come up with a competitor to China's banks that are loaning all this money to these poor nations. And that decision or understanding led to the creation of something that that is uh, called the International Development Finance Corporation, or DFC for short. Well, the DFC has been loaning billions of dollars all around the world for years now, and they have had their eye on Sri Lanka, allegedly to help this poor nation to not, you know, be poor. But really, it's ultimately to push out or compete with the Chinese. All right. With that as background, ladies and gentlemen, let's talk about the news. The White House announced yesterday a loan of $553 million to help build a new deep sea terminal in Sri Lanka. It's going to be located in the port of Colombo, the capital, right next to a terminal run by the Chinese. Oh, that'll be fun. Howdy, neighbors. So here's the next big question. As taxpayers, will we get any sort of special rights when we build out this terminal or any kind of special influence amongst the Sri Lankan government officials? Well, that is not entirely clear this morning. Time will tell. So those are the facts and data this morning on your taxpayer dollars getting loaned out to the folks in Sri Lanka, all to battle the Chinese. Let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion. 
So here's something that we should know. The company that is going to build this terminal, it's called the Adani Group. They were accused earlier this year as being involved in what uh, one American research uh, company or group called the largest con in corporate history, complete with stock manipulation and accounting fraud, shell companies of all kinds, just a real mess. Well, the DFC, your government, is aware of these allegations of the Adani Group, right? And they say that they're watching it and they're vetting people that are involved. Okay, sure. Well, I'll be watching this too. Because as important as it is to battle China for influence and supremacy all around the world, to include in Sri Lanka, folks, we are massively in debt. In fact, yesterday there was an analysis that was released on how much debt we have and how bad it is going to get. The analysis was done by a group that was looking at something called the debt to GDP ratio. And here was their key finding. To get America's budget back on track, to get our historical debt to GDP ratio back to normal, each American is going to have to pony up an extra $2,400 more per year in new taxes. Or we are going to have to cut the equivalent of spending. And that would probably come at some point out of things like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. So this debt issue is something that we really should keep in mind when we see these or other deals in places like Sri Lanka. Because no matter their benefit or their merit, this money, in this case, 550 million bucks, it's got to come from somewhere. And I'm sorry to say that it's coming from debt. And at some point, somebody's going to have to pay that back with interest. And that somebody is probably going to be your kids or grandkids. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. For subscribers listening at rightreport.substack.com, thank you. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, an equal thanks, and we'll be right back. Well, the world is just awful lately, isn't it? And sometimes it makes you just want to crawl into bed and scream into your mattress to make it all go away. Well, if you do, just make sure that your mattress is made by GhostBed. Seriously, folks, GhostBed makes the finest mattresses on the market today with craftsmanship and high-quality materials that you can feel as you fall asleep. And I would know. I have their Lux model, and I bought it because I sleep hot, and that thing helps keep me cool all night long for a great night's sleep. Now, people have asked, how does this technology work to cool you? I don't know. Magic? Maybe little elves in there somewhere with ice cubes? Probably. But it doesn't matter. Their mattresses, ladies and gentlemen, are top-notch. And if you don't believe me, that's okay. They have a 101-day trial period plus free shipping and returns, so you can try it out in the comfort of your own home. So... Go to ghostbed.com backslash right. That's W-R-I-G-H-T. And you can explore all of their incredible models. And right now, they are giving my listeners 40% off their GhostBed purchases. But you got to use that code right. Again, go to ghostbed.com backslash right. W-R-I-G-H-T. And get yourself the good night's sleep that you deserve. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with a pivot towards a mix of international and domestic news. We start with an update on bird flu. I spoke with you about this back on October 25th, about how it was spreading throughout not only this country, but in fact, all the way to Antarctica. Yes, for the very first time. Well, unfortunately, more cases to tell you about, and it is something to put on our radars to see if this year's outbreak gets as bad as last year's which, as we might remember, we paid pretty dearly for at the grocery stores for things like chickens and turkeys and eggs. All right, so here's the latest. In Alabama, 
We've got two new outbreaks there in two separate flocks, and that is leading to the culling of over 48,000 birds as a preventative measure. Meanwhile, in Arkansas, that state's first outbreak of the year is leading to about 30,000 chickens there being culled. So we can add Alabama and Arkansas to other impacted states of this bird flu stuff. Well, we've also got South Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa, and all those folks uh, in those states, ladies and gentlemen, those are big ag states with very critical bird populations that provide you with your chicken and turkey and eggs. For what it's worth, we are not alone with this uptick in avian flu or bird flu cases. We are seeing the same outbreaks happening all around the world in places like Mexico, South Africa, Bulgaria, Romania, and Poland. Now, on one hand, this isn't especially shocking. Right? We usually see an uptick in bird flu cases every fall and spring as native or wild birds start migrating and their droppings spread the disease globally. But yet, on the other hand, this uh, specific type of, a, well, shall we say, a subtype of avian flu, it's a little unusual. It was first discovered back in the year of 1996 in China. Oh, boy. And it stayed mostly in Southeast Asia for the next 10 years or so. But then it suddenly spread first to the Middle East and then Africa. But then it just sort of disappeared until two years ago. And that is when it came roaring back globally. Indeed, as a researcher said in the magazine New Scientist, quote, something is different about this subtype than anything that we have seen since that 1996 detection in China. Just a, a huge amount of virus in wild birds, like nothing we, we have seen before, end quote. In other words, this virus, like all viruses, is mutating. But these latest mutations are just odd. Now, thankfully, though, it is not easily passed to or between humans yet. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, we should keep this news on our radars. And not just because it might affect chicken prices at the supermarket. More to come. With that, we pivot to our last report of the morning. Over the past year or so, we have talked about the horrible drug overdoses in this country. Over 100,000 people have died over the past several years from things like overdosing on fentanyl. Well, doctors and researchers in this country are working on new vaccines and something called monoclonal antibodies to prevent or help stop addiction, especially and definitely to drugs like opiates and meth and fentanyl. But there's been a debate that we should know about regarding the wisdom of this approach of vaccines. Right? Some researchers say that these are just moonshot programs to find a new vaccine and, and they're just a waste of money. And actually, we already have some very good treatment options that most people just don't use enough, but they are on the shelf. So let's talk about this debate, understand it, and think about the ways that we can fight this deadly scourge in our country and what's the smartest use of resources. So first, we should know this. For decades, the medical community has been wrestling with and trying to find a vaccine that could be given to drug addicts or high-risk populations with one very important goal, to prevent addiction or to curb it once it starts. And here's the idea. The vaccines or the treatments would act in the long term, right? With a once a year shot, maybe longer, that would prevent a user from feeling a high. It, kind of in layman's terms, what, it, what they do is it puts a shield around the brain from being attacked or being absorbed by the drug. So if no drug then gets into the brain, there's no high and obviously no addiction. That means there would be no relapse at the end of the day. The cycle is broken. 
But unfortunately, there have been a myriad of problems with these vaccines, namely and most especially, they haven't really worked or they are very expensive. Or you have to have a different kind of vaccine for each type of drug. Or finally, sometimes you just can't get addicts to show up for multi-dose treatments. And that's why other researchers say that we should just focus our limited resources and time on treatments that we already have but don't use as often. One is a drug that is called buprenorphine. That actually curbs cravings. There's also one called Vivitrol. That is a monthly shot that blocks the, the high or euphoria that is normally experienced with drugs. But even those have problems and limitations too. For instance, uh, Vivitrol wears off relatively quickly and half of the patients on these treatments relapse. Plus, insurance companies will only pay for them for a very short period of time, just a handful of months. And that's why the folks at the University of Houston and Columbia University have two different efforts to design a new kind of vaccine for drugs. Indeed, on a long-term basis, what they're hoping to do is create a vaccine that blocks the high for many years. In other words, no addiction, no relapse, the cycle is broken. Now, so far, both of these universities have seen some pretty promising results in animal trials. And that is why they are moving these vaccines to human trials. Unfortunately, those will take about five to ten years before they might be used more broadly. Still, it's nice to know that they exist. So, folks, the reason that I bring this to you this morning is that I've gotten a bunch of emails from folks over the past number of months saying one of two things. First, you've appreciated that I talk about the fentanyl crisis because it's touched people you know and love and your communities. Also, I've talked about how it and addiction have touched my family, people that I love. So just know that I am constantly looking for developments in this area of addiction, and I'm going to bring these developments to you as I learn them. Because, well, it's good to know that there are people out there working on this. And if nothing else, it can give families like yours and mine a little bit of hope. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. It is a response to a bunch of listener questions about Tuesday's election results. Y'all are sending in notes to me. Paid subscribers at rightreport.substack.com. And today I'm going to do something a little bit different. Right? Normally I work from a script and I offer y'all uh, sources and keep things pretty tight. But today I want to speak to you from the heart. Because a lot of folks wrote in from the heart. A lot of feelings of despondency about the future of this country so let's talk let's talk from the heart so yesterday it became pretty clear that uh, democrats and liberals would win some very important victories all around the country and that was very upsetting to a lot of folks who identify as either republicans or conservatives but as we look at the, t the results those democrat victories were driven in no small part because their voters were very motivated about, well, a number of things, but most especially abortion. And people wrote me saying, well, we are just a leftist nation now, and it is just hopeless, and they won. All right, well, let's do this. Let me ask you two questions. And I would encourage you to ask your friends and family these questions, especially if, if they too are angry or discouraged. First question, did you vote on Tuesday? And here's why I ask. Early data so far show that turnout in most places in this country was around 30% in most states. In other words, 70% of us did not vote. All right. 
Second set of questions. In the week or so before the elections, did you get a, a phone call or a text or a flyer in the mail reminding you of the election or to check on you whether or not you voted? Or, hey, if, if you haven't voted yet, can I help you get to the polls? Right. So thinking about those sets of questions, they are very important because they're about organizing. And so I took those questions over the past day and I've asked a number of friends throughout the country about really what comes down to voter outreach and organization. And I asked whether they were contacted. And the answer universally was no, they, they were not. Right? There were no gentle reminders or not so subtle reminders to get your keysters to the polls. Okay, well, that raises the question, if 70% of us did not vote, or did not get these follow-up phone calls and kick us on the backside, who were the 30% that did vote and why? Well, quite clearly, I think this morning, the 30% were really motivated and very organized about something, an issue to include abortion, or they were very passionate about their view of the country to include things like socialism. And they showed up at a rate that was greater than folks like perhaps you and I who don't like one or more of those things. In fact, I, I want to read you something. Let me pull it up. It is a quote. It's from a, an election supervisor in Pennsylvania. She was working at a precinct there. And a reporter asked her about the local turnout. Here's what she said. It's very slow. People prioritize the presidential elections not understanding that your local elections impact you the most. And to her point, she, she pulled up her local numbers in her precinct and she said that 13 people had voted out of the 250 in her specific little area, right? 13 out of 250. And here's the deal. I bet you those 13 were really fired up about something, right? They wanted to support a cause or a party or a person. And based on our national results, it's probably a party or a position or an issue that you don't like, at least based on all the emails I got. But here's the deal. That's how it works. The winners get more votes and they get the country. All because in this case, I think that they are just better organized. So if all that is true, and you all do not like the results from Tuesday, what's the next step? Well, three things, I think. First, we just got to vote. <laughs> Pretty shockingly simple. But 70% of us on Tuesday just didn't do it. Second, we as people, we got to get organized in our social groups or recreational clubs or religious entities of whatever kind. There needs to be a mission amongst all those groups and clubs that voting is very important. And we push each other at least once a year to go out and do it. In other words, it's a value of that group. And hey, what's a, what's a group without a little bit of shame? <laughs> you know, to tell each other, oh, you didn't vote? Hmm, well, I'm not angry, just disappointed. All right, third, the thing that we can think about and do. If you belong to a party, then, well, if that's your cup of tea, you should be calling your county office or that statewide political party office and say, I want to help. I don't like what happened on Tuesday. And talk to them and give your time, your cash, or both. And help develop some plans to, to organize voters the next time around. Because, again, getting back to our questions, if you didn't get a phone call or a text or a flyer or somebody knocking on your door, then that means it's probably not going to happen in the future. And you need to be able to reach out to those folks and say, why didn't that happen? 
And how can I be a part of the process to fix that? And it might be that some of us has to do just some good old door knocking. Right? We've got to channel our inner kid on Halloween. Just keep going back to that house with a normal-sized candy bars. Yeah, I did that. And, until they say, all right, stop bugging me, I'll vote. So let me give you one other example of why this is so important, of why this on-the-ground turn-out-the-vote operation is so critical. In Pennsylvania, the governor there recently pushed a rule through his own office, not through the legislature, where it basically mandated, as it were, that people could register to vote when you get your driver's license. It's a, the, the motor voter law. And Republicans in Pennsylvania, most of them, many of them, were quite upset about that, concerned about fraud in, in some ways, or just the process by which the governor did it. But nevertheless, about three weeks ago, the initial data came back on this motor voter stuff. And the new voters, they were two to one in favor of Republicans. Again, we got that data just about three weeks ago. But based on what we're learning from Tuesday, to include the gal that I mentioned earlier, where only 13 of 250 voters showed up, well, clearly all the new people who are getting their motor voter registrations, they didn't show up either. And that's because I think ultimately nobody was organizing to get their vote. Nobody was knocking on their doors like a kid on Halloween. So the, the point, ladies and gentlemen, is if you're feeling despondent, well, my recommendation is don't because you've got three tools to help you to make things right in this country to match your values. First and simply just got to vote. The second, look at your social organizations and your networks that you're involved with and organize them around this idea that voting is important. In other words, if I could remind you of, uh, of a previous brief, I told you about my old high school civics teacher, Earl Trigstead. Wonderful man. We called him a trigger. So I shared with you what he said many years ago when I sat down in his class for the first time. He went to that chalkboard and he wrote on it, eternal vigilance. In other words, to keep this republic, we have to be eternally vigilant. Yes, that is correct. Trigger was right. So let's be vigilant. And if you do, it's my firm belief, ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, that you are going to get the country you want even if you didn't get what you want on Tuesday. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.